Good morning, Moncton Wesleyan. It's good to be in the Maritimes. We're the best people in the world. Lobster and cold wet. Well, two out of three isn't bad. It's so good to be here and to be with one of my heroes, Pastor Buckingham. Wow, what a leader. Amen. I got to see my good friend Mike Tapper again. We've been friends for a long time. How about Mike? And here's one that you don't know probably near as well as I do, Joel Gorvett. Joel Gorvett. He lives in Alabama. I live in Nashville. We're good friends. And listen, buckle your seatbelts. Y'all have no idea what's about to hit. But it's going to be good. Are you ready for the ride? I'm excited about what God is going to do here, what He already is doing, but the future is bright. Let me pray. God, thank You for this opportunity to bring Your Word. May You work through Your servant today. Give me the words. Give listening ears. Change hearts for the glory of God today. Amen. The year is 1976. The month is March. This young man is living the life. He just turned 17 years old. He's the captain of the high school basketball team. Through summertime work, he was able to buy his very first car. He had lots of friends, lots of family, great health, a beautiful girlfriend, and amazing dreams for the future until it all came crashing down. He surely didn't hear the words right. I'm pregnant, you're the father, and we're going to be parents. All this young man could think of is, you're 16, I'm 17, and before our life has even started, it's over. Completely. All our dreams are dashed. We're not even going to get to finish high school. We won't go to college We'll be poor, on government assistance, food stamps, brokenness, and certain divorce. That is our destiny now. We had it all. We blew it. Now it's gone. Thankfully, there is a God in heaven, a God of love, a God of hope, a God of miracles, a God of second chances. If he could make anything beautiful out of this disaster, he's welcome to try. Here is our life. What else did they have to lose? The summer is July now. That same year, they're married. In the fall, they enter 12th grade. In November, they have a baby girl. Her name is Ginger Joe. They were children playing house, but it was not pretend, it was real. After high school with child in tow, they moved on to college, then graduate work in the full-time work world. Fast forward, the year now is 2016, it's July the 31st. That same couple miraculously celebrates their 40th wedding anniversary. They have three grown children, seven grandchildren, who now serve God, 
owners of a thriving nationally acclaimed business, and by now, you've probably guessed, yes, that is the story of my life and my beautiful wife, Jenny. 40 years, can you believe that? Is God good or not? Can God make beauty out of ashes? Ah, do we believe that in Moncton? He's a chain breaker. He's a miracle worker. Only God. To some they would say, well, that, that sounds like boasting. I can tell you surely today, I boast only in the power and the cross of Jesus Christ. Because only he could do something like that. Only God is the reason that something that started so disastrous could turn out so beautiful. Why do I tell that to you at the beginning of this service? Because to give you hope. Some of you are standing before a mountain that looks like a giant today. It may be spiritual, it may be financial, it may be relational, it may be something else. And I'm here to tell you that if God can make beauty out of that, God can do anything. Amen? That's the God we serve today and that's who I boast about in this service. Many people may ask, with what you overcame and the adversities you encountered at such a young age, how did then that get turned around for you to be wealthy and owner of a multi-million dollar business? And better still, as it relates to us, what lessons about money can you share with us that can help us be faithful in our finances? Yesterday, Got to share lunch after our meeting with Pastor Buckingham, and I said to him, I believe that it is nearly impossible to be spiritually free if you are financially bound. Now, I didn't say not, you know, financial challenges, that, you know, I don't preach this, you, everybody's going to be rich and all that, but to, to create chains that bind us because of bad decisions that we made, not listening or paying attention to the word that he gave us, it's really difficult to be spiritually free when that's hanging over our head. And so today, what I want to share with you is I want to share with you three lies that we believe about money. We don't intentionally believe them. It just happens. And, and, and so we believe those lies because it's so prominent in our society that even as Christians, as God followers, as lovers of his word and his way, we kind of get into that stream. And like the rest of the fish, we just get carried along. And there's three lies that we need to reject. Instead of believe, we need to today begin to reject. And it's all in this passage that Pastor Buckingham read about the five talents, the two talents, and the one talent there. And the first lie is this. Here's the lie. I don't have any money, therefore, I don't need to learn about money. Now, we laugh when we hear that. I don't have any money, therefore, I don't need to learn about money. You would think that they would be the best candidates to learn about money. But what we all think is that we don't really have enough worth doing anything with. We don't really have enough worth paying attention to. We don't really have enough worth even praying to God about. I don't have any money, therefore I don't need to learn about money. My feeling was as a 17-year-old with now adult responsibilities and a wife and a child and a future, 
If anybody needed to learn about money, I needed to learn about money because I didn't have any, didn't have any education, didn't have any job, but I had responsibilities brought on by my own self and the decisions that I made, and now I needed to learn about money. And by the time I was 30 years old, I'd already read 30 books about money. If I don't know it, I need to learn it. The school doesn't teach it, so I need to take control, and I need to take the approach that if it is to be, it is up to me. Do you know that the Bible gives us 2,350 verses about money and stewardship and finances? 2,350. You say, I don't really know how many that is. Well, I'll tell you how many it is. It's more than faith, prayer, heaven, and hell combined. Do you think God put a lot of great instruction in here, including this parable, that we could learn about money? Absolutely. So we need to learn about that. You see, everybody thinks they're the one-talent guy. I don't have enough. I'm just going to bury it a hole. God wouldn't expect much from me. Now, people who are wealthy, people with money, that's who God's talking about. But it's the one-talent guy. You know, we all think we're the one-talent guy. We always look up at other people who have more and say, you know, this is for them. I hope they hear this sermon really good today because it's for that five-talent guy. Go get him, Pete. Go get him. We all think we're the one-talent guy. Well, let me tell you. If you go, don't do it now, to globalrichlist.com, you'll find that in Canada... If a family has income of $41,000 for the year, you are in the top 1% of the entire world. Not Canada, not North America, the world with $41,000 of household income. I did some research and I found out that in Moncton, now some of you I know make less than this, some of you might be blessed enough to make more, but in the Moncton area, the household income, you can research it yourself, is over $80,000, twice as much as that. But if you have $41,000 of household income coming in, the 99% of the rest of the world is looking up at you saying, you're the five talent guys, you're the 10 talent guys, because I live on $2 a day. Two billion people on the planet live on less than $2 a day. Jesus made these comments. He says, if you're honest in the small things, you'll be honest in the big things. If you're a crook in the small things, you'll be a crook in the big things. If you're honest in small jobs, who will put you in charge of the store? No worker can serve two bosses. He will either love, either either hate the first and love the second or adore the first and despise the second. You cannot serve both God and the bank. You cannot serve both God and money. Ignorance is no excuse. We need to learn. If I don't, need, if I don't know about money... It is something I don't have a choice. We all need it to get by every day of our life, every week, every month, every year for the rest of our life. So it's not like it's a choice. We need to learn about it. But reject that lie of, I don't have any money, therefore I'm just going to bury it in the ground, and he's talking to someone else. You are who we're talking about today. See, what we need to do is we need to figure out the habits of people who don't have money, 30 hours a week, I researched this too, in Canada, 
People watch television on average of 30 hours a week. Pete, I don't have any time to learn about finances. I don't even know where to look. Well, we gave you a chance yesterday to come, and we would, you know, and, and many took advantage of that, and thank you. That was awesome. I hope you learned something great. But you can reject 30 hours of television. How about you drop it down to 28 and spend two hours trying to learn about what the Bible teaches us about how to deal with money. Reject the lie, I don't have any money, therefore I don't need to learn about it. We all need to learn about it, and it's in the Word. God made it a priority. By the way, if you can't control the money you have, getting more is not the answer. If you cannot control and be faithful with what you have, having more is not the answer. Let me give you an illustration. By the time they have been retired for two years, 78% of all former NFL football players have gone bankrupt or are already in severe financial stress because of joblessness and divorce. Then there are other celebrities like Vince Young, Mike Tyson, Burt Reynolds, Michael Vick, Scottie Pippen, Debbie Reynolds, Tony Gwynn, Larry King, MC Hammer, and the young people say, who in the world is that? Evander Holyfield made millions bankrupt, broke. Giving more money to people that don't know how to use it is not the answer. The answer is, let's learn how to be faithful with what we've got, then maybe we could get a little bit more. That's the first lie. We need to reject it. It's all about how we manage what we've been entrusted. The man went on a journey he entrusted his talents to them. They never became theirs. It's not ours anyway, which leads us to the second lie, and that is this. The second lie is my self-worth is determined by my net worth. My self-worth is tied to my net worth. In other words, the more I have, the more worthy I am. That's the lie that we buy into by our life. Rachel Cruz, who is the daughter of Dave Ramsey, some of you maybe read his books, read them some more, they're good. His office is right around the corner from mine in Franklin, Tennessee, just outside Nashville. She's just written a popular book recently, and it's entitled, Love Your Life, Not Theirs. Come on now. Love your life. Don't look at other people's. Look at your own. Be thankful, and if God gives you more, that's fine. If he doesn't, that's all right too, but love your life, not theirs. For the most part, we live in a culture that is obsessed and in love with stuff. We love stuff, materialism. Therefore, we get caught up into that, and before long, we're buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even know who, quite frankly, don't even care. All they care about is their own life. They're not looking at yours, and yet we buy things to impress. How did we get in that mess? The answer is, others have it, so why shouldn't I? And why should I wait when I don't have to? We live in a culture, North America, where we don't have to wait to buy things to have the money. We can go out and borrow it and get it. You see, in Canada... We have a problem. Families' retirement accounts are underfunded, and yet every evening the local restaurants 
are overcrowded. We spend money on the things that we choose to spend money on. It's not that we don't have it. It's what we do with what we have. Will Rogers said this. He said, we'll show the world we're, bro- we'll show the world we're prosperous even if we have to go broke to do it. We're going to look good on the outside. We're going to have all the trappings of success. And so we live above our means because there is an expectation that because of who you are, the job you have, and what other people think that we're going to live up to that. And we end up getting ourselves in all kinds of trouble. And here's how. We buy now and we pay forever. And we do it all on the Platinum Bank of Perpetual Payments credit card. That's what we do. Because we can. Most cultures don't have that available. In North America, we do. We can borrow from the future and live in the present. But sooner or later, it catches up with us. Let me ask you a question. Are you living by the verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain? Are you living by the verse, to live is gain, to die is Christ? Because that's how I find a lot of Christians are. They are living for the gain of today, but oh, by the way, I prayed the sinner's prayer, and one day, I'm going to see Christ. But today, if they were honest, they're living for gain. They've switched that verse around from to live is Christ to die is gain. Are you living for Christ now, and then die is gain, or are you living for gain, and then to die is Christ? John Ortberg has written a book, and it's called, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. Did you know that? I like my house. My wife and I, the house we're living in right now, the home we live in in Franklin, we often say this will probably be our last home. This will be the one that we, we end up dying in because this is it. We love that home, but you know what? One day after we're long gone, hopefully, They're going to come with bulldozers, and they're going to come through our neighborhood, and they're going to mow it all down. 80 years from now, 100 years from now, that beautiful home, it's gone. That's what happens. That beautiful car you drive, one day, have you ever seen those things on the television where they have these compactor, and they just crush the car, and all it is is a little pancake? It's gone. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. We brought nothing into this world, nothing wrong with enjoying things. God gave uh, us things to enjoy. Not a thing wrong with that, not preaching against that. What I am saying is don't get attached to those things. Don't get yourself in trouble and be tying your self-worth with your net worth, which is so easy to do even for good, well-meaning Christians. I see it every day. And lie number three, if I give 10%, I can do whatever I want with the other 90%. As long as I'm giving my tithe, as long as I give to God all that's left over, I can do whatever I want with. I just got to be faithful with that. But that other 90%, ho, ho, whatever I like. Tim Hortons every day. People say, what happened to your hand? Some guy tried to get in front of me at Tim Hortons. (laughs) Telling you what, don't try that every day. I had surgery on my hand. Everything's all right. But seriously... If I give 10%, I can do whatever I want with the other 90%. It says in verse 19, After a long time, the master of those servants returned, and he settled accounts with them. Someday, 
He's going to settle accounts with us. And he's going to say, over your lifetime, you were given X amount of money, X amount of opportunities. What did you do? He's not going to say, when he settles accounts, he's not, he didn't say to them, oh, the guy with five, all I'm interested in is half of a talent. In other words, one-tenth of the five that I gave you. He didn't say to the guy with two, all I'm interested in is 10% of the two that I gave you. I'm interested in all that I gave you. See, we think that if we just do this and the offering plate comes around, we put our part in, oh boy, all is well. Look what I've got left over. I can do whatever I want with it. Someone once stated, should I tithe on the gross or the net? And listen, either one is great, but my response was, well, do you want to be grossly blessed or do you want to be netly blessed? I want to be grossly blessed, don't you? And you know what? The more seed that I sow out there, the more that I'm blessed. He wasn't just concerned about the 10% of the bags of gold that he, they, he gave each one of them. He, was, he came back and made them accountable for all of it, what they had done with it. The motto of the story is this. It's all his. It's all his. It was before we got it. It is now while we have it, and when we leave, it all goes back to him. We brought nothing into this world. We take nothing out. Do not buy the lie that if I just give this, I can just do whatever I want willy-nilly. But one day, if you believe that God has uh, made you his child, and you stand before him, we're going to give accountable for every bit of time, every bit of talents, every bit of money, everything that God gave to us. The motto of the story is, we're going to give account for it all. Now, there are five categories of giving that I see in people, not just in churches, but I'm going to go over those with you. Five categories of giving. Number one, this is the bottom. If you take notes, I think it's worth it. But anyway, this will be up here later. You can see it. Five categories of giving. Starting at the bottom is what I call a random tipper. A random tipper. Every once in a while, you're in church, and if the Spirit moves, you reach in, you find a couple dollars, and here's my tip. You're a random tipper. Number two, you grow into a regular contributor. So it becomes more regular. It's not random anymore. It's more regular that now it's kind of become part of your life, that when there's opportunity, and it's not just church, it's other opportunities to be charitable, you find yourself being more regular in being a contributor. And then, for the few that make it past there in life, and I'm not just talking about church people, I'm just talking about society in general, you go up to what I call a resolute tither, okay? So this is the person who just says, hey, I mean, I sit down for 45 minutes on Saturday night trying to figure out exactly how much money came into our household. I don't want to give a penny too much. I don't want to give a penny too little. And it's always going to be right on the mark. And if I have to give $99.86, that's what I'm going to give. I'm not going to give $100 I'm going to give because that's exactly, I'm resolute, I'm right on the dot, boom, that's what I'm going to be. And some people get there. But unfortunately in churches, it's the minority who even get to that level. I like the next two levels. I'm looking for a few good men 
and a few good women here today that want to change their life and go move up to the next two levels. And one is what I call a radical giver. All right, now we're moving on up. We're just in life. You are radical about giving. You are out there and you are giving. You look for opportunities way above the church and other things. And you, look, you say, hey, if last year I gave 10%, I hope this year I'm going to do everything I can to be faithful in all these other areas. I'm going to step it up to 15%, 20%, 25%. I'm going to give to Haiti. I'm going to give to these missions. I live to give. I'm a radical giver. And then only a few Make it to the next level. But if I live long enough and if I don't die before I'm 100, I hope to get there. And that's to the last level that I call ridiculously generous. I mean, this person is just ridiculously generous. Every day they wake up and their whole life that they live from beginning to end, every minute of the day, everything that they do is about giving to other people. If it's a smile on their face, if it's a helping hand, if it's a cheerful encouragement, if it's money, if it's to buy them a Tim Hortons coffee, whatever it is, they, I mean, they are ridiculously generous in all they do. Now, let me ask you a question. What category would you put God into? Is God, is he a random tipper? Is he a regular contributor? For God so loved the world, he what? Gave. Did he give a little bit? He gave it all. That's ridiculously generous. God calls us to live like him. That seems impossible. God calls us to be ridiculously generous, just like he gave it all, he asks us to give it all. Proverbs 22 and 9 says, A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor, and you don't have to be rich to share your food with the poor. My daughter, let's show a picture up here. This is my daughter, Ginger. She turned 40 this past year in November. That's that little Ginger Joe that I started the story with. The last 12 to 15 months have been the most incredibly difficult in all of life for her or anyone that I've even heard anything close. I can't even begin to tell you, haven't got the time to tell you the whole story, but only one part of her problem was that she developed some kind of a nerve that went down her back and down the backs of her legs that is very uncommon that literally put her on the couch on her stomach 23 hours a day for nine months. She couldn't sit, couldn't stand, had to give up two classes short of her master's degree, had to quit her job, couldn't cook for her family, couldn't take care of her boys, could, couldn't, uh, couldn't, do any, couldn't get into bed, lay on the couch, maybe an hour a day, she was able to get up and around, but the pain was so severe, and it's so unknown out there she and all of us and everybody praying, trying to find somebody out there that actually works on and can help somebody like this. We had people in Canada, people in the United States, everybody praying, all that. Anyway, long story short, I wish I could tell you so much more, but over a period of months and many different things and doctors and, and obviously a lot of prayer and God's healing and everything else, by the time this was in November, a year later, she's actually about 80% 
finishing her degree now, back to work some, but she is not 100%, but she's a lot better. So in November was her 40th birthday, kind of an important birthday, right? And I mean, she's had the year from hell, if I can say that. I mean, it's just been an incredible year. She's a great Christian lady, wants to take care of her business and, and do the right thing and everything else. And so all, all of a sudden, it's, it's a, a birthday time, and Jenny and I were, were able to buy her a car and try to, you know, perk her up. So she's standing in front of that. And so it's her birthday. It's November the 8th, 2016, 40th birthday. And I call up Ginger halfway through the day. And I'm like, happy birthday. Man, you need to be pampering yourself today. After all you've been through, your 40 years in this special year, have you been at the spa? Have you had the boys waiting on you? Did they get you breakfast? Did they take care? If anybody needed to be treated like a queen on that day and celebrated, would you agree it would be her? This is the text that she finally, when she had time, sent back to me. Dad, this is what I've done. I made cookies today for several friends who I knew were struggling with various things. I delivered flowers, crazy daisies, and mason jars to several people I was thankful for and took the rest little bouquets to the nursing home for the staff to give to the people who didn't get visits often with a tag that said, the world is a better place because you're in it. And I took the two teenage boys with me. I call that ridiculously generous. You think she gets it? Sure, we're proud. But I'm telling you this, what that teaches you is you can have less than one talent of money and be ridiculously generous with your life. And if you are, do you think God can trust her if he ever chose to give her lots? Do you think so? Absolutely. You start with where you're at being ridiculously generous with all that you have right now, not waiting for the ship to come in. One person is generous and yet grows more wealthy, but another withholds more than he should and comes to poverty. You see, folks, the world is focused on radical consumption, and God calls us to radical contribution. The antidote to our culture's love and obsession with money and things is contentment and give money away. God is calling up a, a generation of ridiculously generous people right here in the Moncton Church. You could turn this city upside down. So what is my point today? Can we agree that the stakes have never been higher? The enemy is putting an all-out assault on your kids, your grandkids, the kids in this community, adults, Christians in general, non-Christians. There's a guy who goes to my church. His name is Gabe Lyon. He's written a book recently called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks That You Are Irrelevant and Extreme. The enemy is playing with big guns, and we too often are showing up with a pea shooter. Why? Because this is mine, and I'm keeping it. Here's our problem. We don't think the, lot, the, the stakes are life and death. We are afraid that if we call people to radical discipleship for fear they will turn away 
We don't call them to radical giving. Let me tell you something. These may not be the best illustrations, but ISIS recruitment is going through the roof. They have thousands of people that they haven't even got time to train and get ready for their mission. Do you think they ask quite a bit of their people? Yeah, only give your whole life. Be blown up for the cause. We think, oh, Pastor Pete, no, don't, don't be too hard on the people. Don't, don't ask for too much because it might scare them away. What about the Mormon church? The Mormon church is one of the most rapidly growing and thriving churches in the whole world. They ask all of their teenagers before you go to college, before you go anywhere, you're going to give two years and you're going to do this. And they ask for a lot. And they're growing like weeds. And we hold back and say, well, we, we don't want to, you know, be too, this, this might turn people off. The opposite is true. I believe that people are looking for a cause to give their life to, to give their resources to, their talents to. They're looking for, to get behind something that they can be ridiculously generous. The people are here. They need to be called to that. God is calling us to that. Now, I've run out of time on part of it, but I want to close with a, a story. Did, have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Jerry Rice? Now, up here you all have hockey, but down, down south they're crazy about football. Jerry Rice is the greatest football receiver that's ever played the game of football, ever. Some even call him the greatest football player of all times, of any position but certainly is a receiver. Here's how good Jerry Rice, who played his entire career for the San Francisco 49ers, this is how good he is. The guy in second place is 41 touchdowns behind Jerry Rice. Do you know how hard it is to score 41 touchdowns in a whole career? And yet he's 41 touchdowns ahead of the guy in second place. By, in, by a long, long ways, the greatest receiver of all time. Now, I need a lot of help, and I need a lot of experts and coaches in my life, and so I have a communications expert coach, and his name is Bo Eason, who used to be an NFL football player, less well-known, but now is into professional coaching of speakers and all that kind of thing. And so Bo Eason tells this story about Jerry Rice, because Bo Eason played on another football team for most of his career, and later on in his life, he actually got traded to the San Francisco 49ers. He said, oh, this is going to be great. I actually get to play football alongside the greatest football player that has ever lived, Jerry Rice. And so, Bo Eason, not being the most talented person in the world, but getting to where he is in his career, he had made a pact with himself over 20 years before that that he would always be the first one to the practice field Every day. And for 20 years, he was the first one to the, to the practice field. So here it is, preseason, the middle of summer, and they're going to have their first training camp. He's now been traded to the San Francisco 49ers, and so he gets to the first preseason practice, and he goes to the football locker, and sure enough, he goes in, nobody's around, just like every time else. He gets ready, he goes out on the field, he looks out onto the field, and he said, yep, just like every other time, I'm the first one here. And then he looked over there. His eyes couldn't believe what he saw. 
Another player had actually beaten him to practice one hour and a half before practice was to begin that day. Guess who it was? Jerry Rice. Now, that doesn't make sense. You could, you could picture that maybe some of the lesser players that were battling to actually make the team that maybe they would be out there, but no, it was Jerry Rice. They warmed up and everything pretty soon. An hour and a half later, the rest of the players came out of the locker room and joined him. Some really good players, Steve Young, Randy Cross, Ronnie Law, a lot of great football players, world-known they came out, and they started doing drills. So uh, how can I do this up here? So anyway, uh, uh, Joe Montana's the quarterback, and he's over here, and he's going he's gonna to throw balls to the receivers. And Jerry Rice is a receiver. And so all the receivers get over here, and they get in a line. They get ready, and it's preseason. Don't get hurt. It's practice. It's warm-ups. Do you get that? And so Joe Montana's over there. Getting ready, first receiver, looks over, gets his attention, snaps the ball, runs out, catches the ball, stops, walks it over to Joe Montana, gets back in line. Next guy gets up. Same thing, just kind of sprints out easy, catch the ball, stop, hand it back to Joe Montana. Now it's Jerry Rice's turn. Bo Eason says, oh, this ought to be good, yeah, Greatest football player of all time. Jerry Rice looks over at Joe Montana. Vroom, goes out, hits it, full sprint, 100 yards, full speed, like Usain Bolt. All the way to the end zone, turns around, all the way back, finally gives the ball to Joe Montana. Never broke stride, full stride, all the way, gets back in line. Whew. Next guy gets up. Runs out casually, catches the ball, hands it back. Joe Montana, Jerry Rice comes back up again. Boom! Full speed, catch the ball, all the way to the end zone, 100 yards, turns around, full sprint, all the way back. He did that again and again and again and again. For three hours he did that. Every time he caught the ball, all the way to the end zone, Full sprints all the way back. When the practice was over, Bo Eason went up to Jerry Rice and he says, Jerry, he says, what are you doing, man? What's all that running? Jerry Rice looked at him. He says, I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he said, Bo, you got to understand. He says, whenever these hands touch a football, this body ends up in an end zone. There was never an accident. He had trained his body to be so generous that he had nothing but full speed, 110%. Every practice, every sprint, every preseason, every warm-up, it was always the same. Bo said, I think if we were doing that drill on a bus on the freeway and someone tossed him a ball, he would jump out of the bus and find an end zone somewhere to get his body into. Why? I'm talking about generosity. Jerry Rice said, I've been given a gift. The coaches believe in me. They've given me an opportunity to play professional football my teammates need me. The owners of this team pay me a salary. How dare I jog through life? 
How dare I treat it like a warm-up? A few years later, Bo Eason's wife comes into a room where Bo is, and Bo's already retired by now, and says, guess who's going to be on Dancing with the Stars? Bo says, I have no idea. And she said, your buddy, Jerry Rice. Bo looked at her without even blinking and said, he's going to win. And he did. You know why? Because he had something we can all have. He had something that we can all do. He was ridiculously generous with the talents that God had given him and 41 touchdowns against the guy or more than the guy in second place. And everyone in this room had been given a talent. We've been given money. We've been given time. We've been given opportunity. And we can be that generous. I think God today is calling up out of this group some Jerry Rices. No more jogging through things. It's all to the wall. It's all the way. It's full speed. God, everything I have, everything I'll ever be, it's 100% yours or nothing. If we all did that, Pastor B, I am telling you what, the next time I come up here, oh man, we're going to have about three services full of people here today that are just like this. I'm telling you, it's just you making this decision today. Are we going to be satisfied with random tipper? Just jog through life? Good enough is good enough? I think God is calling us to a life of ridiculous generosity that just we couldn't even amaze, um, uh, believe in. Are you good for that? He's a chain breaker. He's a miracle worker. He can do it in your life. Give him your all. He gave his all to you. God bless.